0: Hi, Nick Petrella here. This episode is sponsored by Volkwine's Music, a full-service shop that's been meeting the musical needs of musicians for over 135 years. They offer a huge selection of instruments, accessories, music, and more. They also have an unmatched instrument repair department with some of the most experienced technicians in the business. For years, they've serviced my personal and school instruments, and their attention to detail is why I and professional musicians from around the globe trust Volkwine's to service their gear. Head over to Volkwinesmusic.com to see what they can do for you. That's V O L K W E I N S music.com, helping people discover music since 1888.
1: Welcome to the Arts Entrepreneurship Podcast, making art work. We highlight how entrepreneurs align their artistry, passion, and vision to create and pursue opportunities to capture value in the arts. The views expressed by guests on the Arts Entrepreneurship Podcast are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the views of the podcast or its
0: hosts. The appearance of a guest on the podcast, the venture they represent, or reference to any product
1: or service does not imply an endorsement or recommendation by the podcast or its hosts. The content provided is for entertainment and informational purposes only and does not constitute business advice.
2: Here are your hosts, Andy Heiss and Nick Petrella. Hi, Arts Entrepreneurship Podcast listeners. My
0: name is Andy Heiss. And I'm Nick Petrella. Jason Morris joins us today. After selling a successful business he founded, he became a venture capitalist and invests in startups, background screening companies, and in the industries of live music and NFTs. Among the many things he does, he's the manager for Eminence Ensemble, a rock fusion jam band out of Denver. Jason, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. How did you make the transition from the background screening industry to investing in bands and NFTs? Did, did you have any experience in those fields prior to entering them?
1: I, I didn't. Uh, it's It's funny. I've been a live music fan my entire life. Uh, my wife as well. And it's something that we've enjoyed Together, I've enjoyed since I was a kid. Uh, I just love love live music, um, and and I like jams. I like long improv, um, non structured jams. Um, I like to see the artistry on stage in front of me, not something they repeated every single night to the same audience. Um, so because of that, and, and as I was winding down, uh, employee screen IQ, which is the the company that I'm sure we're going to talk quite a bit about today. Um, was looking for what's next, and you know, I, I really tried retirement um, and, and golfing every day. But here in Cleveland, that doesn't last very long, and you get kind of bored. So, uh, on top of the stuff that I was doing, still in the background screening industry uh, with consulting and recruiting and M and A and stuff like that, I really wanted to dip my toe into into music. And over the last. Several years before that, I had made a lot of friends in music, just musicians that I had been following. And I developed really good relationships with some of the bands um, and some of the management of of the bands that I was uh, obsessed with. Um, And uh, there was a band coming through Cleveland that a friend of mine who is the keyboardist for a band called Umphreys McGee. Uh, They're a uh, international touring band, one of my favorite bands on on the planet. And uh, Joel Cummins, their keyboardist, is a really close friend of mine. And he's like, look, what are you guys doing on Thursday night? There's these guys coming through. They're playing at a bar in Cleveland. Go check them out. So I did. Um, And they were fantastic. And I asked after the show, I was talking to the guys. And I'm like, you know, why is there only 35 people in the bar watching your music? And they're like, because we have no idea what we're doing. And we don't have the money. So I, I really wanted to learn the music business um, and I felt that that was a really good way for me to meet people. I'm a, I'm a really good networker. I love meeting people and making friends. So, um, I, you know, I, I figured if I, if I got in that way and I could, I could meet the right people and, and really understand and learn the economics of the business, maybe there was something or some sort of future for me in the industry. So I did. Um, unfortunately, the timing couldn't have been worse because right after we, um, kind of signed a deal with, uh, with with the band and started getting some tours planned. COVID hit, um, mm-hmm. which sucked because we had a we had a slot to open for a band called Lotus at Red Rocks. Um, really great momentum, and then the, the world shut down. So that's a very long answer to the question that you asked. Um, I, I you know I, I got involved with these guys, and I'll talk a little more about that throughout this interview. But um, it really taught me you know how the the business works, and it's it's really different um from any other businesses I'm involved with.
0: Yeah, it's funny you talk about networking. I just the other day I saw that uh Jeff Coffin, who was one of our earlier guests on this podcast, was just featured with him. Just playing with Humphrey McGee
1: Yeah, Jeff Coffin is with uh he is he with Dave um, Matthews. Oh right, yeah, 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 yep yep Totally. And and it's funny, he's got a uh he's in uh, Joel Cummins wrote a book about the music industry and, and he's mm-hmm. in the book. Um nice. so yeah, I forgot, I forgot his name. Yeah, great.
2: Uh, and so maybe maybe going back a little bit further, um, the background screening uh, industry. Starting a business in the background screening is is not something that you know people say someday I want to start a business in the background <laughs> screening industry. So how did you get into that? Was it based on a prior experience? Did you just see a gap in the market where there was an opportunity?
1: It's a lot of that. Um, so okay. I, I went to Kent, um, I graduated from Kent in 95 and my father owned a, uh, private security and investigation company. So my whole life I've been around private investigations. Um, I, I've been practicing as a PI since I was 18, even while I was at Kent. Um, I was doing surveillance when I was a junior in college, uh, for sure, stuff that was happening out in Kent. Um, and, uh, and I knew, out of college, my, I was going to work for my father, and that's really what my plan was. I had dabbled with maybe going into the FBI or, or doing some private police work, but I really wanted to be an in investigation. So I did that, and I did it for a couple of years, and I realized very quickly that I couldn't work. Working in the family business was, was not my future. Um, but I did see a, a, a big need for employment background screening, and it was really something that didn't exist in the late in mid, mid to late 90s. It was a brand new concept the only companies that were really doing background checks were larger companies that could afford right. it. And they were only doing it for their executives. Well, right at that time in 98, 99, you know, every time I Googled or yahoo um, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, you know, background screening, I, I would see these articles coming up about workplace violence and negligent hiring lawsuits. And I knew that there was this inflection point where companies were going to have to start vetting their employees on, on, on a more regular basis. So, um, I brought on some, I started the business, uh, with the idea that we do fingerprinting in schools or something like that. And I really didn't know what I was doing. So uh, a couple months after we started, I really needed some capital. So I went to some, some friends, um, and raised a small amount of money, but I was really looking for partners. Um, I didn't know how to run a business. I, I knew how to run an investigation and I knew how to do background screening, but I had no idea how to run and scale and build a business. So, I brought on uh, two business partners and it really created this unbelievable three legged stool. So I had me in operations and doing the investigations. I had my partner, Nick, who was just a marketing genius, and uh, his dad, Les, who owned all kinds of businesses throughout the years and was a CPA and has run and sold many businesses. So having that business acumen was really, really helpful. Um, so we, we really kind of started in 98, 99, brought the partners on in 99. Um, and 2000 hit, and really the the business started really taking off because everybody at that point, even though the, the economy kind of sucked and the .dot net or the .dot com you know bust was happening, yeah. companies were becoming really conscious about their employees. Um, and you know, did they are they hiring the right people for the right jobs? Do the people even have the degrees they say they had, or or the past salaries or positions they said they had? And the answer was no. Uh, when we started doing background screening, we started finding out a lot of people were lying. Um, <laughs> So and then, this this the second inflection point happened in 2001, and that was 9/11. Mm-hmm. And you know, background checks were not going to stop planes from flying into buildings at all. But when you're setting up solid security programs, your people are, you're, the people are your the people the the things you really have to be concerned with. So sure. the business just hockey sticked um, from yeah. there and. Um, we took it upon ourselves to really embrace the market and become thought leaders in the market. And we were the only ones really doing it. So we, this little company that we built really became a huge brand in the industry. And we helped and I helped found our industry association, uh, which is now huge, um, and sat on that board and was chairman and did all that stuff. So I created this brand, brand for myself as well um and I, and i love thought leadership and i'm doing a lot of that in music today and, and it really i think it's a really great way to to build a brand um but our timing was good um and yeah. our, ba- our brand kept growing and growing and growing and fast forward um 2015 because we were so well known uh we were approached by uh, a company that had just been acquired by Goldman Sachs uh that company was called Sterling and they're one of the largest background screening companies in the world the ceo called me and he's like look he goes this isn't announced yet, but Goldman Sachs is buying us for a billion dollars and the first acquisition we do has to be you. And we said, no, I mean, we were like, we weren't interested. This was a fun, growing, love the business, love my employees, but they finally made us an offer we couldn't refuse. And sure. we exited the business in 2015 and I stayed on with Sterling for about two years, 18 months. Um, and I did a lot of m a work with them, did a, three or four deals and um, and did a bunch of other work with them and quickly realized that working for somebody wasn't for me. So exited the business and I stay involved with, uh, with, with all the background screeners. I'm like I said, I built quite a brand for myself and I'm still the go-to guy for thought leadership and recruiting and stuff like that. So I stay involved. And I'm invested in several companies mm-hmm. within that supply chain as well.
2: Yeah. It's, it, there, there, there's two examples there that you mentioned. You said working, working in the family business wasn't for you and then working in the, um, in the, you know, the larger company that, that, um, Bought, bought your business wasn't for you either. Is there what? What do you think? Is there something to that? Um, and maybe I, I get that there's probably some different dynamics with family business versus a, a you know a larger corporation.
1: Well, I think my my wife would tell you that I don't like to be told what to do, um, <laughs> and and that's probably correct um, in in some regards and. With the family business, it, unfortunately, my father died shortly after I left, but he, but it was just the dynamic didn't work. And, I, and I, I really, I had ideas, I had things that I wanted to really do and, and, and do differently. Um, so that's why that dynamic didn't work. But as far as Sterling, I, I learned more in that 18 months than I did in all of college, all of, you know, probably most of my career in that 18 months because I learned new skills like m and and finance and stuff like that. So it was incredibly valuable. Um, and I wouldn't trade it for the world, but, um, it was quite,
2: it was quite the experience. Yeah. What'd you major in at Kent? I was a criminal justice major.
0: Criminal justice. Okay.
2: Oh, yeah. Right. That makes sense. Yeah.
0: I was going to say, did you do background checks on Andy or, or me? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, it's funny. I, people ask me that all the time. I just don't have the tools that I used to have, um, but I but I can. You know, I can, I can, yeah. I can do He's still something
2: got Yahoo. <laughs> still Yahoo. I'll just, I'll just yeah. put this
0: out there. I'm going to do Andy a solid here. Those are allegations. I guess. <laughs> I do.
2: All right. All right. So, what
0: what attracts you to a venture? As an investor, and specifically, why did you decide to work with Eminence Ensemble?
1: Um, well, with Eminence, it's less about investing, and I really, you know, it's been it's been a decent amount of money, but it's really been more to to reshape the band and and um, and, and really put general business practices into how you grow it like a business, um, which which is easier said than done because with a business. You know, you have your products, you have your services, you have your staff. You don't have what you don't have is six seriously creative minds um, that are constantly wanting to explore that creativity, which can interfere with the business. Um, so it, it's a very different type of, of, of thing to operate. And, you know, learning what the different people in the music business do it was quite evident from very early on that a manager of a band really manages the people in the band. It's, you know, six different personalities and six different ideas. And, you know, you got to control that the best you can. Um, I, I shortly after, you know, after we, I took over the band. We, we, we brought out an agent, um, who does all of our booking for us. And we now have a manager, a day-to-day manager. I'm more of a business manager for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have a day-to-day manager who's handling the day-to-day, um, activities of the band.
2: And so then that was going to be kind of my next, next question was what is your relationship to the band? So you, you get your business manager for, for the, for the eminence ensemble.
1: Yeah. And I, and I, and I fill in some of the gaps on the day-to-day management stuff if I have to, and I did for a while. Um, I'm not, I'm not a lever puller. Um, so I'm not the guy that, I'm more of a strategy person. So I help fill those things in. I help, I do the networking. I've met just a tremendous amount of people in the business through this, um, that I'm helping bring back towards to benefit the band.
2: Yeah. Uh, that makes me think, I, I don't know, uh, Jason or Nick, if you're familiar with Michael Gerber's The E-Myth. Um, yeah, yep, got it. Limo's Small Business. Anyways, he, he breaks it down and says, you, for in order for a business to, to be sustainable, you really need like three different main roles, the entrepreneur, the sort of the vision, the high, the strategy, right? And then you need the managers, people who make sure uh, they all the you know T's are crossed and I's are dotted, and then you need the technicians, the people that do the thing in this case, an artist, right? Yeah. Uh, and each one, you know, each one depends on the other, but without, you know, for example, um, a bunch of managers without enough technicians, right, or too many technicians, they can't, They, you know, they just, um, just doesn't work.
1: It couldn't be more true in the music business. I mean, it, yeah. it, it's, you know, I've, t- I've, I've instilled this into these guys since day one. Having great talent and, and, and making great music and going up there and blowing people away gets you a seat at the table and that's it. Yeah. That's yep. it. If people are paying to see your music, you're a good musician. There's a lot of good musicians. There's a lot of great bands. There's a lot of great bands writing great music. It takes a ton more than that. Yeah. Um, it, it's a, like I said, it's a very unique business. It's not just launching a product and marketing it and selling it and hoping that people buy it. It's completely yeah. different.
0: Well, and that's the purpose of the podcast and the, even in the courses we teach and the courses that other people like us teach, right? Mm-hmm. So just having your value proposition, that's good. It's a good start. Yep. Well, let, let's continue the conversation and say there's a, there's an arts entrepreneur listening whose business is plateaued. Might be an artist, a fashion retailer, whatever. Are there general suggestions you find yourself giving, say on a regular basis when you're consulting, that could help them grow their businesses?
1: Yeah, I think the number one is focus. Um, you know, every artist and every every musician is always looking for that shiny new penny. Uh, every time they bend down, they see one, and that's the next greatest thing. Um, that's a recipe for disaster. Um, not that you shouldn't you know, think about and embrace new products and ideas. You should definitely consider them. Um, but you really got to focus on your, your main goal and, and, and pick three or four things that can, can advance you and focus on doing those really, really well instead of doing a bunch of stuff really half-assed.
2: Yeah. And And so have you spent time with like Eminence Ensemble, like doing a, I don't know, like a, a, a retreat, like a strategic sort of planning sort of thing? Or is, it, is that really just you, you go to them and say, hey, I think this is what we should do or this is a direction um, I think we should go?
1: Yeah, we talk weekly. Um, we've done a lot of, you know, in-person stuff and planning. Sure. But really, COVID messed a lot of that up. Oh, right. um, you know, COVID really affected some of the early plans that we had had. Uh, we had, like I said, great momentum going before the pandemic and now every promoter in every venue and every in the, throughout the country is making up for the two years they didn't, um, have shows and they're, they're, they're cashing out those favors to the people that can definitely move, move the needle. Um, and we're just not at that level yet that we can have those asks.
2: And so, uh, now talking a little bit about your roles of, in, in venture capital, um, and despite the... Ongoing pandemic in 2021, 20 uh, it was a pretty crazy year for uh, venture capital. What what was your what were you doing in 2021 in, in terms of venture capital?
1: Um, it's funny because I, I never would have called myself a venture capitalist until very recently. Um, okay. If you would asked me in 2021 what I do, I would have said I'm a I'm a consultant. I'm an advisor. I'm an investor, Um, but really I've started reshaping my thoughts on what I do today because I still consider myself a background screener. Um, (laughs) So I've been investing in businesses mostly on the background screening side since about 2015, 2016. Um, Lots of companies in the supply chain, new technologies that are emerging Um, there's, I've taken positions in some of these companies as an investor. And a lot of them I've taken shares as an advisor to help grow the businesses. Um, and I just started seeing new things happening in this new music business that I was getting involved with. And I started meeting some people that were creating some pretty cool tech. So I spent 20, 2020, you know, 2019, 2020, and part of 2021, just meeting people and learning about the new technologies that have come out. And I was really surprised because, you know, I I don't deal with all different aspects of the music business. I'm not in country or R&B or or pop. You know, I really kind of focus mostly on the, the jam community. And one of the things that I found in the jam community, when I say jam, if you're not familiar, it's the Grateful Dead and Fish and Humphreys and, you know, Widespread Panic, like all these bands that do a lot of improv. Um, and one thing that I found with all these people, not just the musicians, but the people surrounding the musicians, is they're all freaking smart, like really smart. And... Not just smart where they have great ideas, smart where they went to UVM and University of Pennsylvania and Notre Dame. Like they all came from great college backgrounds. So they're smart people. And the innovation that's happened in the JAM community over the last 15 to 20 years has been pretty extraordinary. These guys want to invent things and they have been. Um, so about uh, right after the pandemic started in March of 2020. I started seeing, um, things on LinkedIn and, 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 and Instagram and Facebook with musicians giving lessons to their fans. And I thought it was really extraordinary. Um, so I was out, I was in Jackson Hole skiing with, uh, my buddy Joel, who's in Humphrey's and he was giving a lesson after, after skiing one day. And I'm like, you got to tell me about this lively company. Like, what is this all about? And he's like, you know, we, we, it started during the pandemic. He's like, and it gives us an opportunity because we're off the road to give lessons to our fans. And I said, you know, there, there's something here. I go, I don't know how, who started it, how it's funded, whatever. I was like, but you got to introduce me to the owners. So within a week, I was on the phone with Mark Brownstein, who is the bass player for the Disco Biscuits, um, which is, they're a huge national internationally touring band. Uh, and his business partner, Alicia Carlin, who is the senior VP of Global Talent for AEG, which is one of the largest music companies in the world, and they shared their vision with me. And their vision was, hey, musicians can't can't play music live now. And you know, one of the things that uh, musicians have are raving fans, especially famous ones. And they've built this business around uh, giving lessons and doing hangouts live virtually with their fans. And I thought it was a great business. So uh, I put together a group of investors um and we invested in the business I think around May of 2021, uh May or June of 2021. And it's you know I I when I talked when I approached them I said I'm looking for a business not just to invest in, but I'm looking to, to partner with and get really involved with. Mm-hmm. And I did. Um, what we found in and, and the lessons platform um is still extraordinary and, and still people are using it, but we saw these, we, we, we pivoted a little bit, uh, about a year later when musicians started hitting the road again, we found that they didn't have as much time to, to do the hangs and, and the lessons, although they're still doing it, it wasn't going to be the revenue generator that we thought. So we quickly, the company quickly flipped into doing also NFTs. Um, and I, I still couldn't even describe to you what an NFT really truly is. Um, or the value proposition behind it but I do know that that it's needed and wanted Um, and if you talk to Mark Brownstein you know he'll tell you and and so will Alicia that and if I'm rambling just tell me Um, in in, in 2000 I'm sorry in in the year 2000 on or about 2000-2001 this unbelievable inflection point happened in music and that was Napster Napster took this product that Bands and artists had been selling for 50 years, whether it's a CD, an album, a tape, an eight track, whatever that might be. And the consumer had to purchase that in order to listen to it. And Napster completely changed the ballgame. Nobody was buying music anymore. And then Spotify comes and you can just subscribe to this and listen to just massive amounts of music for a very low price. And the artists weren't making generating that money anymore. Well, what the NFTs do, which I find fascinating, is it productizes music again. And it creates a unique, scarce product that musicians can put their music on the blockchain and allow people to own a piece of it. Um, and I really like that concept. And, and Lively um, is probably the first company out there to develop an NFT player. So we've launched bands, new bands' music as an NFT and for the, for the bands that we've done it with, I think we've released over 2,500 or 3,000 NFTs already. Um, for the bands that have been using it, they're making more on that than they are on hmm. vinyl sales, which vinyl sales are big right now. Like people are yeah. really into vinyl again and bands are, are, are throwing vinyl out there to help pay for, for the different parts of the, of the business. But NFTs on a percentage basis are, are much, much better for them.
2: Interesting. Yeah.
1: So it's, it's innovation. It's it's innovation. It's just it's sure. pure innovation. And yeah. you know, there's so many things that are coming out of the blockchain with NFTs and yeah. the pictures and the trading yeah. of the photo. Like I, I don't really have much hope for the future of that, but I do for the utility behind the concept yeah. of an NFT because, because now, is. Yeah. now as a Umphreys McGee or a Disco Biscuits NFT holder and you have their music NFT, the, the stuff that you're gonna be able to do with that in the future. You know, you're going to be invited to VIP events. You're going to get first stab at tickets because you're this exclusive, scarce owner of something.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny. You're bringing in a, a variety of different things with people we've interviewed. Uh, Art blocks—they're big in the Ethereum blockchain. Mm-hmm. Uh, we interviewed them. There was also what is it, Demarcus Davis? Yeah, right. Demarcus. So he does online. But what you're kind of doing, Andy and I are both classically trained musicians, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, when you, when you go to study in music, you're going there to, to be a better musician, whatever. It's almost as if your approach is creating, it's merchandise that, that you can, right? It's merch that the band sells that you can interact with, or it's a different way, it's monetizing a meet and greet in addition to have some educational value. Is that, is that close? Or what?
1: It's all that. I mean, I think NFTs offer that in a whole new way, right. um, and, and it keeps the control of the of the money back with the artists and not with the 15 people that have their hands in the pot um, along the way in the business. So it really it's it's a it's a major disruptor. Um, I, we really think that it's going to take off more mainstream. Um, it's just ta- you know it's going to take some time. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe. Visit artsentrepreneurshippodcast.com to learn more about our guest and how you can help support artists, the arts, and this podcast.